Would you pray with me as we turn to the book of Judges? Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the story of Gideon. Lord, this this man who's very much like us, someone who both wants to serve you and is afraid to, who wants to be bold but is also afraid, who both believes and also doubts. We thank you for his story and the ways that we get to hear about the way that you were at work in his life. Lord, I pray that we would make uh, the connections to our own lives today, that we would see the way that you are at work in our lives today, too. In Christ's name, amen. So turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges 6. Last week, I... I shared this riddle that's in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I had about six or seven people come up and share with me throughout the week um, about how helpful this riddle was and this image of this riddle about, um, about what we do with what God has given to us. And so we're actually going to sit with this theme a little bit more today as we look at the, book, at, uh, the, at the story of Gideon. Uh, just to remind you, for those who were here and need a refresher or those who weren't here, here's the, the riddle that's in the book of Ecclesiastes. The teacher of Ecclesiastes says this, that fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. But better one handful with peace than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves Better one handful with peace than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. There's a lot to do in the world. There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot that's wrong. There's a lot that we need to do in our own lives to care for ourselves and for our families. And there are lots of different ways that we can look at those things that, that we need to do. And this riddle says that there's some people who simply fold their hands. They don't do anything. They don't put their hands to any good work. But the teacher says that it's good to take one handful rather than to try to do everything. Take, take the one thing that God has given you to do rather than trying to solve everything. And so the question I want to ask today is, what do we do with our small, humble handful? Or maybe a better question, way to ask the question is, what can God do when we are willing to use our small, humble handful? One of the first things that we need to admit is that our hands are really small. They're limited You are one human being on a huge planet with billions and billions of people. And we've been born into a culture that's been influenced and shaped by centuries of technology and political thought and philosophy and religion. And here we are. What possible impact or change can we make? We need to know that our hands are really small. We are very limited And the genius of this riddle in Ecclesiastes is to to remind us that when we realize that our hands are really small and there's only so much impact that we can make, there's two different temptations when we come 
to realize that fact. One is to think there's just too much to do and to fold our hands and do nothing. And the other temptation is to try to do everything. To try to fix the world on our own. And both of those are temptations that we have to avoid. But we do have one handful. It's small, but it is a handful. And what we have been given is given by God, and it's real, and it's good, and it has a purpose. And so the question I want to ask today as we look at the story of Gideon is, what do we do with our one small and humble handful? What can God do when we're willing to use our small and humble handful? This morning, I want to retell the first part of Gideon's story. And then talk about some of the lessons that we can learn from Gideon's story about how to receive and use the handful that God has given to us. In this story, we see that God is given a handful by God. He was given a very clear calling. And in many ways, he was faithful to God. But we also see that through Gideon's life, there were times when he really just wanted to fold his hands and do nothing. And there were other times in his life when he tried to do more than what he was given. And we see in Gideon's life that he uh, gives in to both of these temptations sometimes. In other words, he's a lot like us. There are some times where we're overwhelmed and we don't want to do anything, and other times where we try to do everything. Um, But Gideon, we see in his story where he does a little bit of both of these things. But in Genesis, uh, Genesis, in Judges chapter 6 is where it begins Gideon's story. I want to retell this story and then talk about some lessons we can learn about what we do with the handful that God has given to us. So in Judges chapter 6, I want to begin with verses 1 through 5, where we read how this cycle that we've been reading in the book of Judges, how it all begins again. Judges 6 verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves and mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So we hear this cycle beginning again where the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God sends those who would oppress them. And this time the oppression is much worse. Um, They're just not subject to the people. And they're not, uh, this time what's happening is the Midianites are coming in and they're letting Israel do all of the work. They're letting Israel plant the crops, grow the crops, and then they would come through and sweep through and just steal it all. And so the people of Israel are, are starving and they're hurting. And so they cry out to God. Judges chapter six, verse six. Midian was so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And this time God does something a little bit different. Rather than just directly sending a savior like he did in the past, we see here in this this time that God sends a prophet, starting in verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. God sends a prophet. He sends a preacher. And this prophet doesn't tell them about the future this time like some of the prophets do. He tells them, he reminds them of the past. He reminds them of who they are as God's people. He reminds them of what God has done for them in delivering them from the hands of Egyptians and bringing them into the promised land. The prophet reminds Israel of God's work in their lives, reminds them that he has not, did not forget them then, and he's not going to forget them now. And then God comes to Gideon, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abazarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Have you ever asked that question before? God, if you're with us, why is this happening to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So God finds Gideon hanging out in a wine press, hiding away from the Midianites, threshing wheat, basically just doing whatever he can to make sure that his family survives. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and tells Gideon, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. I'm going to send you to overcome and to conquer the, Gideonite, uh, the Midianites. One of the things that I really like about the story of Gideon is that here in Judges, more than any of the other judges that we read about, we get a bit of a sneak peek into Gideon's heart. In the other stories about the judges, the writer simply just kind of tells us what they do. Here, here's what they did. Here were their actions. Here was the battles they fought. Here were their victories. But we don't really get on the inside of what was going on in their heart and in their minds. But here in the story of Gideon, we get to peek into Gideon's own heart. What were his motivations? What were some of the things he was afraid of? In a minute, we're going to learn about his family of origin and how the actions of his father may have influenced the way that he acted in the world and the way that his actions would then, we'll find out later, impact future generations. If you're a therapist, there'd be a lot to unpack in Gideon's story. I think if you are a counselor or a therapist, this would be a great, um, great way to practice as you think a little bit about what is going on in Gideon's heart and the ways that his own past had influenced him. And we see here in this story right away that Gideon is grieving. He's grieving because of what has happened to his family and to his people. 
Lord, you say you're with us. Well, then why are all of these bad things happening to us? If you're really here, Lord, then why are we suffering? It's a question that all of us ask. He's grieving. His family is hurting. His people are hurting. They're hungry and starving. And so Gideon asks this very normal human question. If the Lord is with me, then where is he? I don't see him. What evidence is there? We see at this point in Gideon's life that he's very disoriented. He doesn't know which way is up. He's heard these stories about God's work in the lives of his people in the past. He's heard about God's deliverance and salvation. But that story isn't matching his story right now. Have you ever felt like that before? That the story of the way that God has worked in other people's lives isn't really matching up with what I'm experiencing today. Gideon's having that exact feeling as he's talking with the angel of the Lord. He's disoriented, and now God is calling him to go, and Gideon, you're a great warrior. You're going to be the one who leads my people out of the oppression of the Midianites. He's disoriented, he's not sure if God is real, and he also knows that his own hands are small. He knows that he's the weakest, and he comes from a very small tribe, he's not very powerful. And so this first temptation that he has is to fold his hands and do nothing. God, send somebody else. I don't want to do this. But God, in his kindness, reorients Gideon, and he gives him some direction. He says, Gideon, I have a task for you. And the Lord gives him a couple things to encourage him, and they come in verse 14. The Lord turned... The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength that you have. Am I not sending you? And throughout this conversation, we see that God is frequently reminding Gideon that he is with him. I am with you, Gideon. Go in the strength that you have, and I will be with you. In other words, Gideon, you don't have to have much. Your hands don't have to be very big. You don't have to be strong and powerful. You just need to go with the strength that you have, with the gifts that I've given you, with the resources that I have given you. Just go with what you have, and I will do the rest. Go in the strength that you have, and I will be with you. This is another way of saying that each of us are to simply take the one handful that God has given to us and to trust God with the rest. So Gideon leaves this conversation knowing that he is the one that God has called to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But before that battle with the Midianites, there are a couple other things that Gideon needs to do first. Before fighting the battle with the Midianites, that enemy out there, there's some other things that Gideon needs to do first. He has some battles to fight closer to home. They are battles with idolatry in his own home and in his own heart. It's an important lesson here in Gideon's story. God is calling him to go and to fight the enemy out there. 
I'm going and I'm calling you to fight Midian, to fight against your oppressors, to bring order and justice to Israel. But before you can go and fight the enemies out there, you need to bring justice and order to your own home and to your own heart. And that's what Gideon does. Gideon addresses the idols of his own home. Look at verse 24. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Oprah of the Abezerites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut it and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on this newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. God tells Gideon that he needs to begin to worship God rightly. To make a sacrifice to God with a proper kind of altar. And so he needs to tear down the altar that his father had built in his own house and build a new one. So we learn here in this story that Gideon's family has some influence in their tribe. There was an altar to Baal in his father's house. Gideon's family and his father, maybe Gideon himself, might have been seen as a religious leader in their community. And so what Gideon was doing here was a really big deal for this small tribe. And we can see that it's a big deal because the people want to kill him for what he did. And Gideon's fearful of this, but he does it. He identifies the idols of his father's home, and he tears down that altar, and he builds a proper place of worship for God. Parallels here for our own life are obvious, right? There are a lot of you who could come up here now and like preach this part of the sermon. What are the idols in your homes, friends? When we think about the idols of our homes, think about your day-to-day, week-to-week life. What receives your time and your attention? How are you spending your money? What receives your energy? How you spend your time and your money are some of the best revelations of where your idols are. If we're going to fight the battles out there, we need to first take care of the idols that are in our own home. And then there's this business with Gideon and in the fleece. If you know Gideon's story, there's 
In verse 36, there's this very strange story about Gideon laying out a fleece and asking God um, to give him a demonstration of his power. Gideon said to God, verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, I want to say first, before we get into the heart of this story, that uh, this is not a model for how we should seek God's direction, okay? The Bible often tells us stories that are descriptive, but they're not necessarily prescriptive. This is a description of what Gideon did, and this is how the Lord responded. But that doesn't mean that this is a prescription for how we should seek to discern God's will. But what is going on here in this story? I think this story is a story about God, or about Gideon wrestling with the idols of his own heart. Baal was the god of the weather. And in Baal mythology, he had a daughter named Morning Dew. The daughter of Baal was Dew. And the test of these fleeces, I don't think is really necessarily a test for Gideon about what he should do, whether he should go to battle or not. I think Gideon's already decided that he's going to go to battle. He's already begun gathering his army. I think the test is about confirming in his own heart about whether God, the God of Israel was really more powerful than Baal. It's less about him seeking God's will and really a question about whether he can be confident that he's going to win this battle. It's a test to know whether God is more powerful than Baal, whether the God of Israel is in control. And so Gideon is here asking for a demonstration of God's power over Baal so that he can be confident in his victory. I think what we see here is Gideon still wrestling with the idols of his own heart that his father had passed on to him. He had grown up in a home where Baal was worshipped. There was an altar to that idol in his own house. That's a lot to overcome. And while I don't think that this, again, this whole fleece scenario is a model for us about what we should do in order to discern God's will or his power, I think what we see here is that God is kind and merciful to Gideon and that God gives Gideon what he needs. Gideon is slowly in this story growing willing to go in the strength that he has. But he comes to this point where he begins to doubt. And so he has this test, and God is merciful, and he is kind to Gideon in this moment. And God is demonstrating to Gideon, Gideon, I told you that I will be with you, and I want to show you right here in this way, in the way that you've asked, because I love you and I want to be kind to you. I want to show you that I am with you, and you are going to win this battle. So in chapter 7, we read about Gideon going out and beginning to gather his army. 
And Gideon gathers 32,000 men to go and to fight the Midianites. That's a pretty good-sized army. That's 22,000 more than Barak had in the last chapter. He had 10,000 men who went and fought. Here, Gideon finds 32,000 men. But God is up to something different in this story. And so God does some serious pruning of Gideon's army. First, he tells Gideon, Gideon, go out to your army and ask if any of them are afraid that they should go home. 22,000 men went home. Just kind of wonder what Gideon might have been thinking in that moment. This was a pretty good sized army. And now you've cut us down by two thirds. From 32,000 to 10,000, but I imagine maybe Gideon had heard the story of Barak, 10,000 people, 10,000 men conquered the previous army. We can do it with 10,000. And God says that that's still too big. Verse 4, I'll read verse 3 and 4. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all of the other men go, each to his own place. So, from 32,000 down to 300. God gave the victory to Barak over Sisera with an army of 10,000 people. There's nothing wrong with having an army of 10,000 people. God worked through that 10,000 before. But that's not the way that God wanted to work this time. He wanted to do something different in Gideon's life in this particular moment for the sake of Gideon and for the sake of Israel. So that the people of Israel could know and believe that God was real and that he was going to do this thing and to receive the glory for it. And as Judges 7 goes, there's this really interesting battle, the way that God leads Gideon and his army to defeat the Midianites. And it's very clear that God's hand is in this, and God is the one who receives the victory. I want to return, as we've had this story in our minds, to think about some of the lessons that we learned today about how we use the handful that God has given to us. Using our one small and humble handful. Here's a few things that we've learned already, and then I want to spend time talking about one last lesson. The first is to remember the work of God in your past. God sent a prophet to Israel, again, not to tell them about the future, not to tell them about some coming judgment this time, not to tell them that he's going to rescue them. He simply comes, this prophet comes and reminds them what God had done in their past. So when you come to a moment in your life where you're struggling to know what to do, look backward at the work of God in your past. And there may be some clues there to what God wants to do today. Secondly, to remember, go in the strength that you have. The Lord is with you. Whatever gifts that you have, whatever resources you've been given, whatever time that you have, this is your strength. 
This is, this is what God has given you in order to serve. And you don't have to have more than that. You don't have to make up things. You don't have to invent things. God simply says, go in the strength that you have, and I will be with you. I will do the rest. Remember to deal with the idols of your home and heart first. That God is concerned with your own spiritual life, your own walk with him, the things that may be getting in the way of, of your relationship with him. Before we can do bring justice out in the world, we have to deal with our own life first. So before you think about the ways that you're going to go and serve, remember that you can't serve two masters and that you need to deal with the idols of your home and your own heart first. That is your first priority. And the last lesson that I want to suggest that we learn from Gideon is that we need to be willing to do small work. We are fascinated with big and fast in our culture. There's nothing necessarily holy about small and slow, but small and slow really aren't idols for us as Americans. Big and fast and recognizable are the things that we love. And as followers of Jesus, one of the things that we have to resist is our culture's view that bigger is better. To measure our lives or our worth or our value by how many people recognize what we do. I think there's a temptation for Christians in America. This may be true everywhere else, but I've never lived anywhere else. But I know it's a problem for us here. That to believe that if a church is a big church, then it must be a good church. That if a book sells millions of copies, then it must be a good book. There's a temptation for all churches, big or small, to believe that if there's enough money coming in, if there's enough people showing up, then we must be doing things right. There's a temptation to believe that we must be doing something worthwhile if people are noticing it. But when we look at the scriptures, it seems to me that God's work in the world, more often than not, is done through small and unseen ways. Jesus pointed out the offering of a widow who had a couple of pennies and said that in God's economy, that offering was more than all of the rich people who, was, who were bringing the offerings that they had. In Jesus' own ministry, there were times when Jesus spoke to crowds of thousands of people, but most of his time were spent with 12 common everyday guys who had no influence in the world almost at all. And it seemed that more often than not, when Jesus did start getting a lot of people following him, did start to gain a crowd, he would say things like, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and die. And very quickly, the crowds went away. That's not what they came to hear. Jesus' own life and ministry are examples of the fact that God is not always concerned with our definitions of what is important. His definitions of success are different than ours. And it seems to me that Jesus, Jesus was very rarely impressed by the same things that we are. Jesus taught us in his parables that the kingdom of God are like a seed hidden in the ground or like yeast that's hidden in a batch of dough. The kingdom of God is like a seed hidden in the ground or like yeast that's hidden in a batch of dough. And so while you and I are tempted to believe that the things that are most important are the things that, that can be seen, the things that are big, the things that are impressive and receive attention, Jesus describes his kingdom with the images of seed and yeast. Both seed and yeast are small 
hidden things that over time do amazing things. A seed germinates slowly in the ground, but eventually it becomes food for people to eat. The yeast hidden in the batch of dough over time makes it possible for that dough to become fluffy and to make something as wonderful as bread. At the height of Jesus' ministry, he had about 100 followers. In the Roman Empire, there were tens of millions of people, and Jesus had about 100 followers. You sometimes wonder why Jesus didn't get a little bit more done with all the miracles he could do and all. Why not organize things a little bit better, be a bit more effective, get bigger? During Jesus' ministry, there were many times when people heard about him Even his own family, they thought he was crazy and they abandoned him. Those who were closest to him betrayed him. At the very end, he was left with two or three, maybe four people who were still following him. And he died on a cross between two thieves. In the context of the whole Roman Empire, Jesus' earthly ministry was hidden and it was unseen. It would be hundreds of years before Jesus' earthly ministry had any visible impact on society and the world at all. While he was present in the body, his ministry appeared to be small and insignificant and unimpressive. God loves to work through small and seemingly insignificant things. So the story of Gideon, the example of Jesus' own ministry, is the call to be willing to do small things. God wants to use your one handful, and that one handful is often exercised in quiet, secret, hidden, small acts of kindness towards your neighbor. In order to be a part of what God wants to do in the world, you do not have to do big, great things. You do not have to start a political revolution. You do not have to come up with a plan of how to change the world. Instead, what Jesus says, if you want to participate in his kingdom, is you simply start right where you are and you give to anyone who asks you. You start right where you are by turning the other cheek. You start right where you are by living a life of simplicity and hospitality to your neighbors. You forgive your brother who sins against you. And it's in these small and insignificant and unimpressive acts that God's kingdom, like a mustard seed or like yeast in a batch of dough, takes root and grows. The kingdom of God is very rarely put on the news. The kingdom of God is the husband and wife who have endured trials and testing of their marriage and still remain married after 70 years. The kingdom of God is a group of men and women who go out on a Saturday morning and ask people in our city, how can I pray for you? And I can, can I tell you about Jesus? The kingdom of God is a group of men and women who have been leading worship for decades, who step aside and step towards the back and allow some 15-year-old teenagers to lead worship. The kingdom of God is the care for the widow and the prisoner and the person in the hospital. It's taking the meal to the friend who's sick. This is how the kingdom of God grows. 
And the kingdom of God will come. It is inevitable. It will take over the whole world. But it will not come through the strength and power of human beings using all of their hands and doing everything that they can. The kingdom of God will come through the strength and power of God. And so we need to be a people who pray. A people who pray that God will give us eyes to see the small and hidden places where God calls us to take our hand full and to offer our good, we, good work in the strength that we have, knowing that God is with us and that our handful is enough, that it is more than enough, and that he will do the rest. Do you believe that? Amen. Lord, I pray that we will trust you with this. Lord, I pray that for those of us today who see the hurt of our world, who hear the voices that are clamoring for our attention, calling for us to do something, and in response to that are overwhelmed and just want to fold our hands, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to act. Lord, I pray for the others of us in this room who hear all of that and who just want to do everything. They want to grab everything and want to fix the world. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are like that, Lord, that we would trust you, that you are with us, that we simply need to go with the strength that we have and that you will do the rest. So, Lord, I do pray that you will show us what is in our hands, what you want us to offer to our neighbors and to the world, and that we would be faithful to use it for your sake and to leave the rest in your good and strong and capable hands. Amen.